You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Bodker, and I'm joined with my two good friends, Dr. Stephen Kissler, the epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kissler. He's back, and I feel like only for a little bit before he's just gone for like six months with COVID. Hey, Mark, how's it going, buddy? How are you doing? It's good to be back for, for a little I, while. We'll see what happens. Yeah. We'll see what happens. And I don't, and I don't mean like getting COVID. I don't, I just meant like you treating COVID right. and the craziness of That's life, right. So that's right. Yeah. So big news. It was Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. guys. <laughs> What'd you guys do? Because was it Halloween? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> Stephen in Boston here. Yeah, well, Stephen we, Boston. We Zoom, we Zoom trick or treated with Stephen and my parents and my wife's parents and a whole bunch of our family. We just like lined up a bunch of Zoom calls in a row, and then and then my wife hid candy around the house, and each of the families gave a clue to the kids to go run and find it, oh, and wow. so we had like a little scavenger candy scavenger hunt. So that it was, it looks, was all right. It was, it was okay. It was good. You know, everybody got dressed you up. Guys, it was fun. You guys are creative. I love that. That was really, that's really good. However, the, the whole concept of a Zoom trick or treat, that must be the most disappointing thing for a child. Here, have a virtual piece of candy. You can't do anything here. Yeah, that'd just be, that'd be, that'd be rough. That'd be really rough. Yeah, we were, we had a great time. We were, gosh, we went out trick or treating to Nana's house which was a really good time. So, you know, she knew that they were very limited in what they were going to get. So she gave a lot of stuff to fill up their baskets with one trip. So (laughs) it was pretty, pretty phenomenal. So that was good. Then we went to a friend's house and we had a little social distancing in their backyard. The boys never had that much yard to run around and sprint in for about an hour. So that was really, really awesome. And so we were, we were, we were so engrossed in conversation with our friends that I, I, we weren't seeing our boys constantly in their bags, like just an, it, like inhaling all of the candy in that one hour. Like, oh no, this is really, really bad. But they were excited. Yep. So yep. we had an awesome time. The boys loved it. We went, we went a little extra on their outfits this year because we usually shaft them every year. We go like, here's a hoodie. Let's just paint it. And we're good. So, so this year we, we thought, well, in light of a pandemic, at least they'll have nice outfits. So they were adorable. That's great. Steven, what did you do? Oh man, I, I feel like I didn't even realize it was Halloween until about two in the afternoon. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> so, so there was not an awful lot, but it, it was, there were definitely people out and about kids in costumes and running around. A lot of them were pretty creative with their mask use, used that as a way <laughs> to incorporate it into their costumes in mm-hmm. pretty creative ways. So yeah, just like a lot of little groups of like sub 10 year old kids running around parks and stuff was... <laughs> kind of what Halloween looked like in Boston, but that's awesome. Didn't do much here other than gave some clues to Marcus kiddos and watched them run around the house. Oh, nice. Brilliant. That's great. Well, I'm glad you had a, you re- I'm, well, I'm just thankful you realized it was Halloween yeah. at some point in time. That was really good. Good work, Stephen. Good work. Yeah, seriously. Oh man. Well, we have, we have, we have, we yep. have, <laughs> yeah, it's only on the cave. Oh man, you could have been Batman, <laughs> Stephen. Have been perfect. You we could have to been get, totally. We tried to get one of one of our any of our kids to dress up as an antibody or as their uncle Stephen, and oh yeah, and none of them none of them had it. They were like nah, uh, epidemiologists. It's like yeah. it's, it's too soon for that sort <laughs> Maybe of thing. Maybe next year. It's yeah, yeah not, that is yeah, way too scary. Do. Way too scary for <laughs> yeah, Halloween. Next year we'll do epidemiology. <laughs> yeah, we tried. Yeah, we gave too, a shot. Too soon, too soon. 
It's too raw. Great. Well, all of you guys are listening. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we love reviews. Keep them coming. It helps us move up the rankings. We hear all these good things about how we keep it non-political, just dealing with the science, dealing with the practicals of life, and want to get into more hands. So if you can, give a review. It, raise, it kind of raises us up and makes us known. Also, if you want to support us, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast, as little as $5 a month can help us keep this going, or just a one-time gift, PayPal, Venmo, all in the show notes. Okay, so let's get going. We did a show on Wednesday, just Stephen and I. We got Mark back temporarily. There's not a lot to cover, but one of the things, Mark, you mentioned, just riffing on of just getting perspectives, uh, and we're going to get into you in just a second, Mark, but just perspectives from March and now, now, because it's a similar thing, right? We marched, there was these increased cases. It was unknown. We were behaving differently. And now it's November and we're seeing increased cases again. There's unknowns. How, how are we behaving, acting, perceiving things differently? Mark, I, I, you know, let's start with you and just kind of seeing with March and include as a doctor as well. You know, Steve mm-hmm. and I were talking about on the last week about it's interesting to see you as a doctor. You have a couple hats on, right? As a father, as a husband, but then as this unique doctor situation where you came in in March and I'm sure you were the hospital at large and you as an individual were treating patients. There's a lot of unknown, trying new things. What was the behavior, psycho, the psychology of the hospital and you and how is it or is it at all different now on the second kind of big rise? Yeah, I mean, I think those are great questions. It's funny because it's hard and I think it's it's important in some ways to not disentangle too much those different hats, like you were saying, yeah. that, you know, that there's mm-hmm. this, that, and that's one of the things that I've appreciated about, you know, chatting with you guys through this whole process is that it's been about, you know, everybody's encountering this in this really kind of this deep way that affects mm-hmm. all of your different relationships and your professional identity and you know everything like that. And so, you know, I'd say that the, the docs that, that myself and, and the docs that I've been working with, there's no exception to that. It's funny how fast in some ways, something can become a little bit more normal. And so there was even a sense of that in the early, in the, within the first peak or so that once we got a certain sense that, you know, what, what are some of our illness scripts around COVID? What are some of our processes in the hospital? Not that it, you know, necessarily became mundane or every day, but there's this way that I think that people are really resilient and kind of adapt to it really radically different situation relatively quickly. And so it's interesting, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, we're looking now, you know, we've seen some, we've seen a pretty significant case increase in Colorado in the last two weeks or so. And we're all expecting to, you know, we're opening new teams again, and we're going through a lot of the same processes that we went through in March to get geared up to take care of COVID patients again at higher volumes. But a lot of those processes, rather than figuring out what are we going to do, we say, okay, we're going to do what we did in the spring with these tweaks that we learned. And all of a sudden we have a sense of sort of a script and sort of a sense of this is how we move through that uncertainty. And as silly as it is to say it, there's a little bit of a sense of kind of, you know, this is, it's being folded into the routine uh, of what we do. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I mean, I just couple, I think, quick thoughts to that regard from a medical perspective. One of them is seeing the ways that there was sort of a microcosm of that on each of the individual floors as they went from being a general medicine floor to a COVID floor um, or something Mm -hmm. like that. So you would see, you know, you would uh, get to witness this whole new group of nurses and CNAs and staff people and housekeepers, and then yourself, you know, all go through that process of like, shifting and having a new sense of, you know, we've already built in sort of our sense of tolerance for all the different contagions we encounter in the hospital. 
but this is new, you know? And so all these, it's just, it was just different. Everything took a huge amount of thinking, you know, putting on and off the equipment and going into the rooms and all of that just had such a high, much higher cognitive load, you know? And I wouldn't say that that goes away completely because we're still in a very unprecedented and pretty in a very virulent infection. But there is a way that some of that gets routinized a little bit in a way that is positive. And so that's one of the things that we've seen. The other thing that I'm conscious of too in the hospital, the hospital is a strange place to work, you know, Mm -hmm. and because on some level, almost every person that you encounter, you know, particularly every patient that you encounter is in a moment of personal crisis to a certain degree. And, you know, greater and lesser degrees and some of these things are, you know, some of the things that people come in with are very reversible and treatable and there's a very clear pathway. And other people come in with things that are not either not clear or that represent a really big existential shift for them. You know, that all of a sudden they're coming to grips with their disease that they've had for years and years being much more serious this time or, you know, shifting in their goals of care. And now all of a sudden they're, you know, they're going from a more treatment focused mindset to a more comfort focused mindset or just, you know, sort of the realization of I am frail, you know, I'm aging. I am not the person, you know, these plans that I had are all of a sudden shifting because because of the interruption of illness. That's something that happens in every single room in that hospital, you know, every single room in the ER. And it doesn't matter in some ways how trivial from a, a medical perspective the thing might be for the person who has it and, you know, whose body is affected. It can be the biggest thing in the world, you know, in that moment and the people who love them. And so there's a way in which the weird thing about COVID for me was that it was this very collective experience of that as a society, you know, as all of the people all at once were experiencing sort of this frailty from a global perspective. But it, but then also at the same time, you have all that stuff kind of going on all the time under the surface of the hospital anyway. And so I think one of the things that I'm still working towards is a way of just of understanding that and articulating that a little bit and recognizing the ways that being, being a doctor in the midst of a pandemic both is and is not different from the nature of the work at every other point in time. And I think getting a little bit of a higher resolution in the sense of that both the differences and similarities for me is really important because that changes my disposition as I go into a room and as I encounter my colleagues and am aware of, you know, the stresses and and things going on around me. So those are some of the things, you know, from a professional perspective, at least that I'm thinking about and that have shifted a little bit over the last few months. And before we head off to Stephen, Maybe you kind of touch on a little bit, but is there a collective, you kind of alluded to this since in March it was, there was unknown and systems were being put in place. Now you're kind of reviewing those systems and tweaking them. Is there, is there a greater sense of like, hmm, like almost experiential confidence between March and, and not some, I mean, yes, as a hospital, as you, but is this experiential, is it at all being perceived by the patients? as well, mm-hmm. maybe between March, because we, we were just talking about last week, we're not about how, why are the death rates so low? And you're going to speak to this in just a moment, because you were talking about mm-hmm. this. And we were just, you know, we said there was that general study that uh, remdesivir is not that effective, all that kind of stuff, we did, but it didn't really count for the cocktails, all this kind of combination. So why is this? And to speculate, is it a possibility that also just the idea of a greater sort of collective confidence puts a, a, a patient at a more ease and hopeful state? 
or do, have you felt anything through there? You or as a hospital that way? Well, I think I, you know, I don't think that necessarily that changes the outcomes. So I think that the outcomes that we're seeing and, and we'll talk a little bit in, as to the factors why we're seeing a lower in hospital mortality with COVID during sure. this wave than, and so I don't, I don't think necessarily it's, it's, to kind of the physical outcomes. But I think there's a tremendous amount of the work of healing that is not just in sort of the physical outcomes that happen. And it's a lot about accompanying and witnessing. And, you know, one of the big problems, one of the big things that I felt and a lot of people felt and articulated, you know, more beautifully than I can was the separation between providers and patients that was introduced because of the masks and the PPE and the sense of contagion just the sense of vulnerability. And I think if anything, my hope is that in this wave, that there's a little bit of a more of a sense of how do we accompany these patients again, you know, that we're practicing, we're still, you know, going to at some point be practicing, you know, very high volume medicine, but how do we, how have we adapted around these constraints to still be with the patients. I think that's important. And that is part of, that's part of the work of healing. And as part of, you know, even if it's not captured in mortality rates and things like that, you know, I don't think we, we can't minimize the effect that just being with another person who's, you know, in a vulnerable position, how important that is. Mm -hmm. Great. Thanks for sharing. Stephen, how are things changed for you? Perception, March, you at Harvard between March and now with, with this next wave? The types of questions that we're thinking about and asking and trying to answer have shifted hugely. And in some ways, I think this might parallel a little bit of what Mark was talking about, too, where in March and April, there was just so much that was unknown. I remember in some of the earlier episodes, we were talking a lot about like standards of care and just how there, there wasn't really one for COVID patients, that there's there, there just wasn't this clear sense of like what what is it? How do you care for a patient as they come in? And 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 that's seems like it's hugely shifted. And I and I think that that's from the epidemiological side. That's also changed as well. It's the questions are not so much like what is this and what will it do, as we now have a very clear understanding of the epidemiology of this virus. There are still things to learn, including things like duration of immunity and how many people get what amount of immunity for how long? And is there the possibility of differences in severity from reinfections? But at this point, we're sort of those, those sorts of questions are really sort of trying to shine light on this frontier of knowledge that we've already done a very good job, I think. And we, I mean, as, as, as a society as a whole answering, we, we've, we've got a much better grasp on, on what this virus is. And part of that too, comes from the fact that it's, it has continued to behave a lot like we expected it to. If it had continued throwing us many surprises, then I think we would be in a different spot as well. But given our knowledge of other respiratory viruses, other pandemic respiratory viruses, pandemic flu, things like that, the, it's, it's following a relatively well-known script in infectious disease epidemiology. And so that gives us a little bit more confidence that it, that it will continue to as well. Now, of course, a lot of that script remains in our hands. We have some of the things that distinguish it from pandemics that we've seen before, most recently, like 2009, for example, are that the 2009 H1N1 flu pandemic was just not nearly as severe as, as this is. Yeah. So there, there wasn't really the same risk of overburdening hospitals and a really mass excess mortality. And so because of that, people's behaviors didn't change as much in 2009 as, as, as we expect them to this, this fall and this winter. 
So there are still some some questions and some things to account for here. But I think it, now it, taking a shift from sort of the questions and the intellectual side of things to how it feels, there is much more of a sense that we just sort of have a better grip on the problem. There's less of a sense of this sort of generalized threat of, of sort of contagion coming from who knows where. I think the the canonical example at the beginning of the year was, of course, Wuhan and then the outbreak in northern Italy. And there was really this concern that like that could happen anywhere at any time. And and that's really what we as epidemiologists were, were trying to forestall. Now we have a much better sense of where the disease is, what what the risk of that kind of outbreak is. And with that increased knowledge, I think that there's less of a sense of randomness and like just total uncertainty, which really helps. And I think both is is more comforting in a way. And I think also helps with with doing certain types of science. <laughs> we're we're not as paralyzed in a sense of of this sort of impending disaster. Because Science is interesting because it's one of many activities that you can engage in as a human, right? And and so at the beginning of the pandemic, there, there was this real question of, is doing science right now the best thing we can do? Or is it something else? Should we be like helping people stockpile resources? Should we be volunteering at local food shelters? Like there, there are different things that we could be doing and we want to make sure we're doing the most useful thing. And science might not be it. I think that now at this point, a lot of these other things have sort of gained momentum and and the, the 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 need for science is there and it's clearer what those questions are and what the benefit could be. And so I think that gives us a little bit more confidence, sort of like we were talking about with what Mark was saying, confidence as we're walking in the room. Whereas my room is is the cave, it's this room and it's always been this room, but <laughs> it's, it's yeah, not the room yeah. of a patient. But but there is still uh, sort of this confidence that comes along with it, sort of knowing that we know what questions to ask and that those questions are likely to be worth answering. Just to just to interject here, thank you for your comments. For from from the perspective of one on the outside who is not doing the science, I would like you to keep doing the science, please. If this if this happens again, <laughs> just if you need need yeah. the record, keep just keep doing the science. You know, I think that it's yeah. important to to recognize that that's for the rest of us quite important. Yeah, <laughs> so, appreciate that. So, I hear, <laughs> oh, yeah. but I hear where it's Absolutely. but I hear I mean, where it's coming from. I mean, I hear where it's coming from, which is this place of you know, just a sense of being when you're standing up against something as big as a global pandemic like this, you know, you start to ask all sorts of questions about yourself and the good that you're doing in the world. And I think that, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, first of all, you know, yeah, feel free to volunteer at a food pantry for 30 <laughs> minutes or an hour if you want to. So, but don't, don't, don't quit your day job. Yep. But on the other thing, you know, I, I feel, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm a little bit diverting this, but I'm just thinking in March and April, it was so incredibly confusing and chaotic. And so here you are as an epidemiologist trying to bring some sense of clarity in the midst of like, what is going on? And so I feel like in some sense, I f- you probably feel like there's even more weight upon you. Again, I could be just totally off base because when everything else is chaotic, everything else is kind of folding up and closing down, right? Like literally closing down. So outreach services, all these things are beginning to close down. So then you're probably feeling this pressure of like, what should we be doing? And but I, I I feel like that's kind of just the natural order of things. When things become totally chaotic, the expert in that field or the experts in that people co- come together and try to figure it out, and things begin to slow down until we have a course. And then I'm sure you're probably feeling now a sigh of relief. Okay, I don't feel like the world is impending upon me. Now things are kind of there's services available, there's things helping. I can do my job and not feel like 
the weights upon me to do everything. I mean, I, I don't know. That's what I came to mind when, when you were talking about this and yeah, that's a fair yeah, reflection. It's, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. I think it's, it's exactly that there, yeah. there is just sort of, there is still very much a weight to it and a, and the sense that there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot, yeah. a lot of work yet to be done, but there's some, sure. some of that has been taken off that it's, it's not so much the weight of trying to bring order to something that, that is mm-hmm. <laughs> utterly chaos to, totally. to now just sort of like expanding out, building upon the order that's, that's there and that we know that's, it's yep. just a, sort of a different, a different type of pursuit. Yep. Yep. Great. Thank you for sharing, Stephen. Uh, for me, it's the old layman here. And I, I should probably emphasize old as well that, by the way, I got, I got, I, I told Mark this and Steven, I, I don't know if you know, but I have high cholesterol now as of like three weeks ago. So I'm really old. So I got to work on that. Anyway, side note, just, just, just let you know I have high cholesterol. It's that time of my life. So yeah, for me in March, it was just really, I think kind of what both of you are saying, particularly you, Steven, it was just so chaotic, so a mess that I hadn't, there was, there was nothing that seemed known in, in our house. So then there was these six, every precaution was made and it was absolutely exhausting. The amount of everything that we did to try to protect ourselves from this unknown virus. It's so different now. Like I granted there is a different fatigue. I mean, there was a combination of physical and psychological and spiritual fatigue. Now I think it's a little, a lot less physical. I, the, the routines are built in place. I feel like in my, you know, whether it's wrong or not or right, I at least I feel in my, hey, if I do these like three or four things, I'm doing the best I can. Check, check, check. The rest of the world, whatever. Like I'm wearing my mask, keeping social distance, trying to stay outside, doing those things, washing my hands. I've done it, right? The, whatever else happens, happens. That wasn't like that in March. And so I feel like now with this other wave, it's, it's, it's frightening, but I feel like I, whereas when the, the, the first wave came, I felt like it was like this out of control, unbearable force that there was no human being could stop this time. I feel like, no, we could actually, I mean, now it's crazy right now, but no, we, there's things we know that we could do that, that, that actually could slow this down. So in my mind, there's a, there's a pathway to lowering the curve and flattening the curve outside of a lockdown. So my mind is just, it's, it's more restful physically. I'm just uh, beating the same drum for nine months or eight months. That's killing me, right? But other than that, I feel better in that way. But just really, I, you know, and, and maybe there is a sense of maybe a little more less fear, to be honest, a little more anger, uh, frustration. Just come on, people, just do the simple thing. Whereas I didn't know what the simple thing was in March, so I've kind of replaced it. Not rage or anything. I had that a couple of times, but that's just besides. This is between you and me and our audience. But uh, so, but now it's not not rage. It's just a, just a little irritability irritability and anger. That's a, that's that's a difference. Yeah, it's funny how tough it is to sustain. We've talked about this, but I think just just how tough it is to sustain something difficult over a long period of time and to kind of keep coming back to the reasons why we're doing things, even little inconvenient things that build up. So yeah, it, it is, there is a sense that even though the panic isn't there or the, you know, the kind of the, the huge shift that we're in a different time that is just as challenging, just challenging in a different way. It's like we went from an acute mental illness to now a chronic mental illness. That's really fun. <laughs> Not to yeah. make light of any of that with anyone who has that. I don't mean that in that yeah. way. I just, it can feel just a lot ever enduring thing. So it's tough. thank yeah. you for sharing. 
Let's, you know, Mark, I'm going to throw it back to you because we, we haven't seen you, heard you, didn't know if you were alive. Thankfully, you're, you're all alive. So let's bring you back on a, a few updates on yeah. just what's going on with, I mean, I'm curious, watching the stuff going on in Colorado, particularly the rates increase, mm-hmm. wondering about you in the hospital, what's going on with the hospital increasing? What's, what's different up there? Yeah. So it looks like the last I could tell somewhere around increase in national hospitalizations around 40%. So 40% more patients hospitalized in the last, I think, month or so than they than previously. So we've definitely seen a national increase. We're seeing the same thing here. We're seeing court, sort of that pattern that we expected, which was higher testing, you know, higher, higher numbers, higher prevalence in the population, then higher in, in hospitals, and then potentially we're going to see that mortality spike down the road. And I'll talk a little bit about the, the data that we have around more in-hospital mortality next. Things we're seeing just kind of from the, the inside perspective, we I'm, I'm very impressed with a lot of our kind of administrative practices and the way that they're do, doing rapid cycling of how do we do process improvement and how do we address this second peak in a way that, you know, taking all those lessons that we learned uh, from the last pandemic. There was an interesting article that was published in the New England Journal Catalyst, which is like a, a side publication of the New England Journal that talks about healthcare delivery. Um, and it's not, that's not my forte is, you know, necessarily is the administrative side of things, but I found it really interesting because this was an article about how seven healthcare systems in Colorado got all of their chief medical officers together and had these um, really robust planning meetings throughout the pandemic and the first phase and doing things like, you know, addressing provider wellness, addressing patient kind of, how do we get patients through these systems in the safest way possible, especially when we're thinking about the systems being overwhelmed. It looked like between March and July, the these seven systems cared for a little over 6,000 of the 6,400 hospitalized patients in the state. So like 98% of the wow. hospitalized patients with COVID were represented by these people you know, who are getting together and working across divides that are often somewhat competitive, you know, in the, in the healthcare industry. And, and also I was struck by the way that that coalition helped to advise our state government about some of the things that were going on and our, you know, our safer at home or our stay at home orders and things like that. And so it's always that, that type of communication and that degree of collaboration, I think is something that is a huge bright spot in the midst of a lot of difficulty. And so just a huge amount of kudos to the people who are involved in that. And as an individual provider, you know, it feels very good to have our systems be able to put aside differences and and focus in this way and in a really agile way when something unprecedented comes up. So that's one of the things mm-hmm. that I've been thinking about and that I think that sort of thing sets a precedent for how we address the second peak. And so the hope is yeah. that, you know, all the things we learned and all of those, you know, lines of communication that are now open are going to be there already for us for when things get busy soon. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things we'll see, you know, currently elective procedures are still underway and we've already had conversations about what are our thresholds, you know, as an institution and as a state for, as we kind of march through the wave as we did in the spring for when do we start to turn down our other activities to try and create a little bit more space you know capacity for covid patients so so that's all you know it's all happening we're having more frequent planning meetings we're opening more teams you know really by the it's essentially by the last 
two or three weeks, we've continued to open additional teams for higher capacity and a lot of contingency planning. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. I did want to address, because you guys had talked about it a little bit last week, and it's been in the news a lot, is this idea of the changing in-hospital mortality of COVID patients, too. And you know, I think globally, this is another piece of really good news in the midst of things. The Journal of Hospital Medicine published a brief report, it looks like on the 23rd of October. And they what the researchers here did is important because they did a statistical risk adjustment. So one of the questions that we had had is, you know, is the decline in mortality rates because more frail patients were getting it early and now we're seeing, you know, generally healthier patients or things like that, or like maybe it's a lot more older people early in the pandemic and younger people later. But they, but by adjusting for those demographic and health factors, they could sort of using statistics extract uh, mortality rate and compare. And it does look like there's a statistically significant improvement over the, over time. And that that's also been the trend that we've seen. There was a study that's, I think, just been published in preprint from England that found in critical care units decreased mortality later in the pandemic than early in the pandemic. And, you know, I think some of this, some of this is probably due to the new treatments. So things like remdesivir, dexamethasone that we're using, it's also uh, due to combination of increased clinical experience, you know, both from a provider perspective and also like a clinician perspective and also from nursing. And everybody is just a little bit more experienced with this as we've been talking about. Maybe we're intervening a little bit earlier. Uh, maybe there's a higher community understanding. One of the questions that was raised that I think is fascinating, and I don't know exactly how we can get at this answer, but in that Journal of Hospital Medicine study, another thing that they mentioned is maybe people are being exposed to a little bit lower viral loads because of the baseline physical distancing and mask wearing that we have, and that that perhaps is a tiny part of that bigger signal, you know, that we're seeing in the lower mortality rates. And then also some non-pharmacologic treatments like proning patients. So having people lay on their belly actually helps oxygenation in some of these critical, you know, respiratory illnesses and things like that. So, so I think what we see is this huge constellation of in-hospital factors. But the nice thing is that when we extract the, some of those patient characteristics and control for them, we're seeing improved mortality going into this second wave. I had a question for you, Mark. I asked this Stephen last week, but since you're kind of on the ground ground floor, and this is maybe a little bit a, a <clears throat> difficult question, but with Marge, with all the heavy influence on ventilators, and now mm-hmm. less influence on ventilators, and more now going in the stomach, which is, seems to be another great approach to help get oxygen, is there any, is it just probably anecdotal, or I've seen some reports of suggestions suggesting that maybe the ventilators may have done some more harm than good in some patients, which could have led to a slight increase in mortality of, um, of scarring of the lungs or no? It's an interesting, so I think it's, this is a tough thing to, to tease out. I would say that, you know, I don't want to propose like proning as an alternative to mechanical mm. ventilation or anything like that, that at a certain point, you know, it, at a certain point you need to have mechanical ventilation to preserve, sure. you know, oxygen and, or, you know, even more advanced think you know past that so that's that's still going to be a mainstay and having enough ventilators and having enough icu beds is going to be critical absolutely critical we do know that mechanical ventilation is isn't as good as normal ventilation you know it's always better to breathe on your own if you can and that there are risks to mechanical ventilation some of which include you know the barotrauma from having air pumped into the lungs things like that the risks i would say the benefits outweigh the risks in these cases of severe 
you know, COVID pneumonia, absolutely. And I think it's important, but clinicians, you know, our, our critical care colleagues are always very attentive to trying to prevent intubation unless it's absolutely, absolutely necessary precisely because of those reasons for, you know, in COVID and in other illnesses, you don't want to intubate somebody who doesn't need it, you know, ideally, but if they need it, we've, I think that, you know, there's ways of doing it safely. And so that's definitely not something that I would, you know, I don't think that our listeners should be afraid of that. If someone they know or love needs that intervention, I think it's really important to get it and that the benefits of that outweigh the risks. And then a follow-up question on the coalition you mentioned. You talked about the, the article, the journal article about this coalition in Colorado. You, either in the in the journal itself or you, talking to your other friends, not in Colorado, who are other yeah. hospitals, has there been seen of like, oh, no, I mean, wow, I'm so glad to be a part of this hospital. You, you were like this. We were not like this. I mean, are there examples yeah. of... I mean, I think there is some pretty significant geographic variation. I did hear, I had the opportunity to speak with an ER doc from New York a few weeks ago, and he was part of a similar coalition of emergency physicians in New York City. And so I know that there are places that were doing this sort of collaboration, and I'm sure that there are other places that didn't have nearly as robust collaboration also. And so I think that's one of the other reasons why it's so important for these groups to say what they did, you know, publish what they did and get it out there so that other people can find best practices and follow along. Great. Awesome. Anything, any, any last words, Steve and Mark, before we move on? Great. Okay. Well, I think we'll probably end here because there's not too much more to talk except for, look, there's an increased amount of cases. We're all, we all know this, but thanks to Steve and Mark, I think there's a lot of hope on the horizon to seeing this unknown of a lack of increase in death rates in the hospital, but there's a lot of good reason to be thankful for this and uh, a lot of hard work because of Mark and Steven. So thank you both for what you've done and helping us to be able to remain safe and healthy and to get the message out of how we can actually continue to deal with this pandemic in a way that still brings some joy to us and hope. And so thank you guys for, for contributing to that. I appreciate it. Okay. We're going to end. We're done this. I hope you guys have a wonderful week. We're back to theoretically on Mondays now until another obstacle happens. Then we won't be on Mondays. So we will hopefully see you all next week when the world will be a different place. Take care. Bye-bye.